Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. One of the worst side effects of cancer is that it takes away control and it changes the way you see yourself and the world around you. It's easy to lose sight of who you really are and you need to find your way back. And that's what I love about Sophie's book, The Cancer Whisperer. It's all the ways that you can take back control. Take your power back without being a hero. Sophie shares some fantastic advice and insight that can really help you make your way through cancer. Lovely to meet you, Sophie. I I have to say, I feel like I know you a little bit because of your book. (laughs) Yeah, I really loved it. I mean, thank you so much. I I know you you probably get that a lot, but yeah, I I really, really loved your book. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. So there's there's a metaphor in your book where you refer to cancer as this place on the map where the map runs out. And <laughs> you know, that's exactly how it feels. Like this is this is the the uncharted land. So Sophie, what is the first thing you should do to reorientate yourself in this new world? I think it's a place on the map where the map runs out. I mean, I think it runs out for other people in other ways, but we find ourselves in these situations that we have no guidance for, no plan for. A cancer diagnosis is blindsiding. It blindsided me and uh, really blindsided me. I didn't really have many symptoms, but I think the very first thing we need to do is deal with our fear because we're in shock and fear and often in denial at the beginning. And that can start to take over and it can start to run the show. And I remember when I was diagnosed, I was given lots of leaflets in the British NHS about what to expect from chemotherapy and what to expect from radiotherapy and how to apply for disabled parking. But no one handed me a leaflet about how to deal with my terror and my grief and my rage. No one was, no one even asked me the question. No one in Britain in our lovely oncology wards, God bless us, our stiff upper lips was even talking <laughs> to each other about how scared no one was reaching out saying, are you as freaked out as me? So for me, I needed to really confront, challenge, work through my fear before I could do anything that felt remotely powerful in response to my disease. And that's really why I wrote the book, to help people do that. I have a background in psychology and I have a toolkit for dealing with fear and rage and all those things. And I found it tough. And I thought, if I found it tough, I wonder who else is finding this tough. And here I am. That's what I spend a lot of my time doing now is helping cancer patients work through their fear. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, Sophie. And uh, so what is the first thing, uh, I guess, you would suggest to do about fear? What is the first step in the process? I think the first step is to name it um, and not go all positive. <laughs> I, I meet many pet cancer patients who instantly get into, I have to be positive and I'm going to be okay and it's all going to be fine and I'm going to fight this thing and I'm going to do the battle. And I don't think that thinking helps us at all. I think we need to take some breath into our precious bodies and say, I'm scared. I'm just scared. Most fear, interestingly, is caused by what's going on in our heads. So a cancer diagnosis is frightening enough, you know, because clearly it's a frightening thing to happen. 
But then we start telling ourselves things like, I'm a goner, or it's over for me, or I've wasted my life. It's unfair. I'm failing my family. It's my fault. It's the world's fault. I'm powerless. It's hopeless. I have to do what the doctors say. I mean, we just get into this, I call it mind talk, where we start predicting the future and imagining what's going to happen and telling us how terrible it's going to be to have chemo. And we get into this mental spiral of fear which adds pain to pain and suffering to suffering. And we need to learn how to deal with what's going on in our heads when we get a diagnosis. It isn't, you know, the doctor will say, you have cancer. That's what I call a life shock. You have cancer. And then we give them that moment meaning. We, and cancer is loaded with more terrifying meanings than most words in the English language. So we need to learn to deal with what's going through our heads, what we're telling ourselves, what we're predicting is going to happen. And we need tools to do that. It's not simple to describe that in a couple of minutes, but there are tools you can learn for how to deal with your fear. And a lot of what we tell ourselves is simply not true. In fact, most of what we tell ourselves is not true. Yeah, wow, that is so true, Sophie. And I, th I think you really captured the fact that it Cancer really changes your identity. And I, I know that you also mentioned that, you know, in your book, that at one point in time that your doctor said to you, do not become a patient. So that advice, what did it mean to you? You know, that was one of the most empowering things. Makes me cry just remembering it. Most empowering things anyone I think has ever said to me at one of the darkest, at the darkest hour of my life. Because what it meant to me was stay a person, live your life, don't give your power to this disease. It's not over yet. It, it was quite an extraordinary thing for a doctor to say to someone, don't become a patient. And in a way, it's, I think, what propelled me to become a patient activist because it's so easy to lose your personhood when you become a cancer patient. Suddenly you're a patient. And everyone treats you like a patient and you want to scream, no, I'm still Sophie. I'm still me. Treat me as me. I still have a life. And um, it was a very, very empowering thing to say to me. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, but by the time I was then in the hospital system, because this was just the diagnosis moment, by the time I was in getting more and more and more and more scans, it just stayed with me all the time. Don't be a patient. Don't be a patient. Stay yourself. Stay in charge. It was an amazing thing for a doctor to say. I'll be forever grateful to him. Yeah, that's very powerful advice because, because the system really doesn't make it easy for us. Like, You know, and, I, and that's why I guess I love your story about how you really put your foot down when, when you had the call about the, the radiation appointment. Yeah. Well, uh, could you talk about that? And how was this moment meaningful to you? Well, that, that man was in my head a bit when I did that. And it's funny, this was quite a controversial thing to do. I didn't know it was a controversial thing to do. And I, I want to be clear that most of the time I accept my appointments and You know, I know, I know how difficult it is for these hospitals to plan these things. But in that moment, I, I was coughing blood. I could hardly breathe. I had multiple brain tumors. I had tumors in my spine. I was in deep, deep, deep water and they were pressuring me. You've got to do this now, 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 now. 
And I remember the, it's again what I call a life shock moment, the nurse handing me my appointment on a piece of paper and saying, here's your appointment. And I looked at it and I knew inside me that if I fitted my life into my treatments instead of my treatments into my life, I would be on a very fast downhill spiral psychologically. It was a psychological thing. And and the truth was, I wasn't free that day. I mean, I wasn't just being difficult. I wasn't free that day. And I just said, I'm not free that day. Can I have another date? And she was like, what? I mean, I didn't know it was such a, an unusual. <laughs> it just seemed like, I'm not free that day. Can you find me another date? And I think that was the moment that I took my power back from the disease and from the whole system. It was a, it was a turning point for me to say, no, I'm going to run my life. I'm still in charge of my life. And even if I die, I'm going to stay in charge. And since then, my oncologist and I have created an amazing partnership. And I'm pretty much asked, when are you free, Mr. Savage? So, yeah, I think that was the moment I took my power back. Yeah, that's very powerful, Sophie, because there are all these expectations on us placed by, by the system that you are simply supposed to uh, just put up with it. And I remember myself that, you know, when I had a call from the oncologist saying, you know, we need to change our appointment, there was no consideration that, you know, and I said to them, look, I've just came out of, you know, a grueling chemotherapy treatment. I'm going to get my results that day. I'm taking time off work. My, my wife is taking time off work. My mom is coming along. I can't, I, can't, I can't just change it just because, you know, circumstances have changed. And I, I, like I said, I wasn't being difficult. It just struck me as there was this no please, no here is what happened. It's just you have to do this. And that just didn't yeah. sit, sit well by me at all, you know? And it doesn't, I mean, I think part of this is this, it's an incredibly overstretched system with overstretched staff. And thank God they're there to help us. But it's not necessary. It's an attitude that goes with it, Joe. It, there's an assumption and, a la as you say, a lack of, can you do this? Can you make this work? That there's a lack of inquiry and a lack of connection and, a, and sometimes a lack of humanity. And that is what I think some patients, in a way, they buckle in the face of it. And it can be even more dispiriting than the original diagnosis because suddenly someone else is taking over my life and telling me what to do. And you can feel like a child again in those circumstances. It takes a bit of backbone to say, actually, that's not okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you, you lose so much control anyway that, that you, you have to make a, a conscious decision, like, like just like you said, that you, about taking it back because the system is really not built for the patient. And that's why you feel powerless. Like I remember when I was diagnosed, you just feel like, like this rabbit in the headlights, you know? Yeah, you do. You really do. And there's not much to pick you up with that side of it. There's I mean, it's not a doctor's job to help you through your fear. They're not trained to do that. But I do think it's their job to be aware that you're scared, that you have emotional needs as well as psychological needs, to be sensitive to that and to point you in the right direction for support. I don't think that's a complicated thing to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you bring up a really interesting point, Sophie, because I remember that at no point did it occur to me going through treatment or actually to any of the specialists that, you know, maybe yeah, I'm struggling psychologically with it and maybe I need some external help. Like there was no nothing in the system that said, 
how how are you doing? You know, are, are you actually coping? You know, um, there are two charities, Pennybron and Maggie's, who give patients psychological and emotional support. And Maggie's cancer centers are situated on hospital grounds. And there aren't, I wish there was one on every hospital ground in the land. I really do. But I gave a talk at a Maggie's Cancer Center, and I think it was the one in Oxford. And it had been open for, I don't know, two or three years. And it was on the hospital ground. And no oncologist had ever walked through the doors to say, what do you do here? Wow. Had ever walked in to say, what do you do here? And to find out what they offer. I, I couldn't, that was hard for me to fathom. That's just so disconnected. It's so disconnected. It's, and, and it's on the doorstep. Like, I think they send their patients to Maggie's, you know, because they know to say, what are you doing? What are you giving my patients? You know, I found that fascinating. So that's how disconnected it can be. And Yeah, wow. And, and Sophia, you know, we touched on fear, but there, there are so many conflicting emotions that we must entangle when you get cancer. So... What advice do you have on that front? Where do you start? Wow. I think this is the main reason I wrote The Cancer Whisperer, Joe, because it's such an important thing. And there are a lot of books on the market. I mean, there are cancer books are an industry now. Um, and I read a lot of them, but I couldn't find one that really helped people navigate the emotional, psychological part. And it is very conflicting because... I remember in my case, I mean, there was fear, obviously, fear. I mean, I, I, they didn't think I'd make it six months. So that was a very terrifying thing for a mother of a four-year-old. But there's also anger and regret. I mean, I was riddled with regret about all the things I hadn't done in my life that I wished I'd done and all the things I had done that I wished I hadn't done. I mean, I was stunned by the depth of regret that I faced and with it, grief, just enormous, enormous grief. So I can say more about that, but you have all that, you have denial, you have fear, you have anger, you have regret, you have grief, and it's like a cauldron inside you. So to me, it's... I mean, I hope my book provides some tools to help people with that. And a book is a book. There's a limit. I think it's really important to reach out to centers like Maggie's and Pennybron or even counselors to sit down and say, I'm scared, I'm angry, I'm grief-stricken, and get help with it. It's more than I can unravel in a short interview but it's doable. You don't need years of therapy. There are really practical tools. I highly recommend if you're in the U actually internationally, the More to Life program, which is moretolife.org. It's an educational charity where I learned everything I've really learned about how to deal with this stuff. You need, need to be fairly physically well to do their courses. So if you can't do that, then there's places like Maggie's and Penny Braun. You need to reach out and face into it. And many people numb out and try to be positive on top of it, but it comes back to bite you in the ass later. Yeah, absolutely, Sophie. And also, like you said, your daughter was four when, when you were diagnosed. And, and that's a really tough thing to do, to explain it all. How, how did you go about doing that? It was a really tricky, well, we were very clear about doing it because my husband lost his father when he was six years old and nobody told him what was going on. Nobody told him how ill his father was. 
and um, suddenly he was in hospital and then he was gone. He wasn't taken to the funeral. He didn't get to say goodbye. I mean, it was another era, but it had really a very long-lasting effect on him to not know through his childhood what really happened. So we were very clear that we were going to tell. Also, there was a chance, I, a good chance I would die before she was five years old. So how do you tell a four-year-old? Um, we told her I had cancer. We told her I might die, that she might not have a mummy anymore. We kept it as simple as we could. But I wanted her to not be blindsided. I wanted her to be as ready as she could be at that age. We needed to talk about what does death mean and that mummy wouldn't be here anymore. It, it was, but I'd be, I'd be in the clouds and the trees and I'd always look over her. I mean, it was heart wrenching, Joe. I mean, it was heart wrenching. And I remember her, you know, when she was a bit older, just raging at God. And she was saying, you know, about, I, I want my mummy here and please don't take her to heaven and please leave her here. So it's been tough on her, but we've included her. And we don't over-dramatize. I'm very well right now. There's nothing to fuss about. I had multiple brain tumors three times. I nearly died, I would say, last year. I, we didn't think I'd make Christmas. So we keep needing to revisit it. And she's older now. And it's harder now, in a way, than she was four because she, she lost her grandfather two months ago. And she knows what death is now. So in a way, it's harder as she gets older. But we've included her, and I think that has made it much easier for her. She's not – the thing about kids is they pick up everything. And if you don't tell them what's going on, they make it up in their own heads. They imagine it. And there's a lot of research that shows that they think they've done something wrong. Wow. They're picking things up, and they think, something I've done something wrong, or something's my fault, or they turn it on themselves. And that's why I think it's really important to be truthful with our children, however devastating the truth is. Yes, Sophie, I can so relate to that because like my son was, was around three when, when I was diagnosed. And, you know, I really felt that when we made Michael a part of it all, when he had his own toys with me at the hospital, you know, when we made like a doctor's kit for him. And... Yeah, great. brilliant. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, he had his own like... <laughs> He had his own lanyard with the picture, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, and so we did all that. And then we had, like, you know, his third birthday here in, in, in the oncology ward. And we had three oncology nurses singing happy birthday. Like, there was a moment when it all became normal. It all became yeah. a part of life. And yeah. I think, like, he start, he stopped freaking out. He stopped yeah. freaking out because he realized that all of a sudden he's included in all of this. You know, because exactly. we didn't really know how to handle it, you know. But now that he's included, it kind of made it all normal. And that is such a beautiful example of it. Honestly, it brings tears to my eyes. It becomes normal. I mean, it becomes normal when you do it that way. And it's just part of their day. Oh, mommy's gone for a treatment. Oh, mommy's in hospital. So what? It's like, it's like a no thing after a while. And Gabrielle has grown up with it for four years now, nearly four years. So it's just part of her world. Absolutely, Sophia. And you have, you have the Compass, your fantastic system for, for dealing with cancer. Can you talk about what that is? How did you come up with it? And, and how, how does it work? In my book, there's a chapter on each step of the Compass. So it includes things like one of the, one of the point, pointing north is coming to terms. So that's about coming to terms with 
what you're dealing with, facing into it, getting through the fear and the denial. There's a chapter about understanding your disease and becoming an expert in your own disease. I think that's one of the reasons I'm still here is I'm an expert in my own disease now. I, I know it as well as my doctors know it. Sometimes I know it better. I've had moments with doctors when I've known what to do when they haven't known what to do. There's a that's something about stabilizing your body. There's a chapter about grief. There's a chapter about clearing all the mind talk in your head. So I wanted to just create, because it's the place on the map where the map runs out. So I wanted to create a compass for people at the point on the map where the map runs out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So where do I go? How do I go? But a, a compass that guides them to attend to their mind, heart, and spirit, as well as their body. Because we focus on the body, the body, the body, the body, the body. But where's the guidance? We're, we're integrated beings. And our disease is, it's all connected. A physical disease is connected to emotional dis-ease. Disease means dis-ease. We need to get that. Disease means dis-ease. So we need to be attending to, in order to live, not, not, it, we may not even make it. Joe, I may not make it. I, I may not make it. I've made it longer than anyone thought. But I can, I can go to my deathbed knowing that I have, I have healed parts of my being that needed healing, and I have moved into what I call my my dharma, my purpose in life, and I have, I have more connection, more authentic friendships, a clearer sense of purpose, even of destiny than I ever had before cancer. And that doesn't mean I will beat cancer, which is a phrase I hate. <laughs> yeah. uh, it doesn't mean I'm going to overcome this thing or make it. I don't know how long I'm going to have. But let us have all that we can have while we can have it. Uh, let us live as fully as we can live. And it, it, wake up is a mass, I mean, cancer is a massive wake up call to say, will you claim your life? It's, will you claim your life? And what is it you want to live that you haven't lived? And who is it you want to be that you haven't let yourself, let yourself be? And that, I mean, that is the gift. I mean, that is the gift of cancer. And that is why I'm profoundly grateful that I've had this experience. I would give it back tomorrow in order to raise my child into adulthood. But in some ways, it's been the making of me as a human being. And I'm making a bigger difference than I was before. I, I've done this work for a long time. One of the chapters in my book is called Knowing Your Purpose. So the compass is a guide to not just attend to your body and um, your fear, but to engage with your life in a new way. That is very profound, Sophie. And I guess that's the theme for me reading through your book is that of transformation, of transforming um, fear into gratitude and bitterness into hope and dark into light. Does this sort of reflect how you feel about cancer, this whole transformation <clears throat> theme? I, oh, I think it's been very transformational. And those shifts have certainly occurred, fear into grat gratitude and bitterness into hope. That has certainly incurred, I mean, it, it massively. But it's not that simplistic because I move between fear and gratitude regularly. I didn't move from fear to gratitude and now I'm in gratitude every day. No, no, no. I'm a human being. 
I have I, I haven't transcended fear. I have confronted it and I continue to do so whenever it, you know, raises its ugly lying head. I confront it again and again and again and again and again and move myself back to gratitude. So it's an ongoing practice. I, I don't I don't think we move from one to the other and that's it. I think it takes work and commitment and I lose my hope. And I have very dark days and I have days of despair and um, days of, of hopelessness. And when I, I don't know how I'm going to take the next step, but I know what to do with those things. And I know how to move myself out of that state and then back into gratitude. And I'm not really keen on the dark to the light thing story because it's like the bad to the good because it's to this or that you know dark or light and I have dark days I have light days but on this journey I have found light inside the darkness not beyond the darkness like dark and then light there's light right inside the darkness and it's the most dazzling light of all because it surprises you you know on my darkest darkest days I have found wonder and awe and grace that I could not have predicted or imagined. So I'm not afraid of the dark anymore because I know there's light in the darkness. And there literally is. If you, you go out on a dark night and your eyes adjust, you'll see the light inside the black. So that's what I hope people living with this can find a way to find because I'm not a false positive person. I don't like positivity. I think it's like putting icing on dog shit and calling it a cake. <laughs> I'm about authenticity. And that means if my time is up, facing that my time is up and, and saying yes to death, as well as saying yes to life and finding the grace and the beauty in dying as well as living. That's what I'm really passionate about. And I think what I help, you know, I've helped some cancer patients die peacefully and i'm probably more proud of that than of anything i've contributed to them staying alive so yeah there's light in the darkness joe there's also um we can rest in peace before we die we That's don't very powerful sophie okay. very powerful you have a very distinct take on grief so can you can you could you talk about that Yeah, I used to think grief was something you needed to get through when there was a devastating loss in your life and something that brought closure. I mean, I kind of bought into all those, what I think are now myths about grief. And grief is often thrown in with fear and anger. And there are different types of emotions, Joe. There are separating emotions that separate us from who we are and our and our connection with others and our connection with life itself, fear, anger, resentment, envy, jealousy, bitterness. And then there are feelings that connect us with ourselves, others, and with life, like love, joy, excitement, happiness. They're very connecting emotions. Well, so is grief. Grief opens the heart. It doesn't close the heart like fear does. It opens the heart. It's an incredibly healing force. And I, it hit me much harder than my fear. I was overwhelmed with grief when I was diagnosed. But it's become my friend. I have waves of it every so often. I don't get through grief. I've taken it by the hand. It walks with me every day. It reminds me of everything that's precious to me and everything I love. It keeps me connected to life. 
I think it's the other face of love. I think it's another name for love even because we grieve that which we have loved and that which we love. So I've become a very big fan of grief and I actually would like to do more work to help redefine our understanding of grief in this culture, that it's not a heavy, burdensome, of course there's all of that, but I think it's one of the most healing forces we can embrace in life. Yeah, that's that's really powerful, Sophie, because yes, for, for me, I think I've been stuck in, the, I guess, the old paradigm of where grief is something you need to get over, like like a speed hump, you know? And, and that's yeah, not really how it works. Exactly. It's not how it works. I mean, my father died two months ago of lung cancer, as it happens. We were a right pair. And I have waves of grief. It's still very fresh for me and raw. I was I had the privilege to be there when he died and to help him find a little peace before he left. Um, he so didn't want to leave. But I don't want my grief about my dad to, I don't want to get over it. I want to hold it in my heart for as long as I walk this earth because I hold him in my heart with it. It keeps me connected with him and it's not doesn't have to be heavy every day. I've had grief that's brought me to my knees. I don't want to get over it. I, I'm happy and content to have it live in my heart and him with it because it keeps me connected to my dad and my love for my dad and my desire to remember him and honor him and speak to him at night with my daughter, which she likes to do. Can we talk to Papa? She says. Grief helps us to do that. And um yeah, I it's a companion I welcome. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear to hear about your dad, Sophie. It's but yeah, like mm. you say, the connection is still there. Mm. And he had a he had what we call a good innings. <laughs> yeah. He had a good innings. Sophie, in the book, you talk about the importance of dealing with moments when life shocks you with an event that you weren't expecting. Why is that important and how does it work? Okay, this is an important question because we often in psychology and in the mind, body, spirit world, we talk about life challenges and life events and trigger events and, and those things are important. So cancer is a life challenge um, or a life event. But hearing the words, you have 27 brain tumors, is a life shock. It's a very specific moment in time. And I've been teaching about life shocks for 37 years. I, I, I was taught about them from a, I think, unsung genius of the 20th century called Brad Brown. That's another story. But when you focus on these moments in time, when you engage with these very precise, specific moments that hit you the hardest. They're the ones that hit you the hardest. Mrs. Savage, you have 27 brain tumors, for example. And you connect with that moment in time. First, when you go back to that moment, all the feelings and all the thoughts are uh, stored like a file in the memory of that moment. So just by re-experiencing a life shock, you open up the psyche, you open up the feelings, you open up all the beliefs and, that's running, and you can bring it into the clear light of day and deal with it. So it's an amazing thing to engage with those moments. But it's also, um, God, I shouldn't. You, I could talk for an hour on this. I'll try and bottom line it. Have you ever wondered if life is trying to tell you something? Have you ever noticed patterns in why is this happening again? Why am I in this kind of relationship again? What's going on? 
But life is trying to tell you something. It really is trying to tell you something. It's saying, wake up. You are not what you fear you are. You are not what you think. You are not what you believe. Life is not what you think, what you believe. Wake up. Wake up, wake up. And it's knocking on the door every single day, trying to get our attention. Hello. Hello. A life shock is a collision point between how I perceive the world and how the world really is. We have dozens a day. It's every unexpected, unwanted moment that happens. But every one of them is an opportunity for awakening and transformation. And that is the subject of my next book, actually, because it's such a big subject. I, 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 I've written a book about it. So Fantastic. Let's talk about your next book. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> tell us more about that. Well, it's called Life Shocks and How to Love <laughs> It's called Life Shocks and How to Love Them. It's out in June 14th. I would say it's the philosophy behind the cancer whisperer. So when I became a cancer whisperer and the way I met that disease was because I had spent 20 years of my life learning and teaching people how to engage with life shocks and how to meet them as opportunities for profound transformation. And so this book is its really what's behind the cancer whisperer. It does continue my cancer story. Um, my cancer story continues within the book and all that I'm continuing to learn from my cancer life shocks because cancer gives me many, many life shocks. But it's about more than that. It's, um, it's not just about illness. It's about life and how to be fully alive. There are chapters about things like beauty, success, power, and life shocks in these arenas and how we can learn from them, how we can engage with them. And there are some very practical tools in it for how to do that. That's fantastic, Sophie. I really look forward to it. So if someone wanted to learn more about you and about your books, what would they do? Firstly, go to sophiesavage.com. I'm also on Facebook. I have a group called The Cancer Whispers. I'm Sophie Savage, The Cancer Whisperer. I have a page. Most of it you can find on sophiesavage.com. And they can also go to mortalife.org, which is the program in which I teach about life shocks. And there are courses about the kind of work that I do if anyone really wants to do some much deeper and sustainably life-changing work. that's that I highly recommend that. I'm a trainer in that program, but it's an educational charity. So sophiesavage.com is really the place to start. Cool, fantastic. Thank you so much, Sophie. It's been incredibly profound. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much.